The year, 1944. The place, southern France. The Allied forces have come to liberate France from the Nazis, but they're not landing in Normandy. It is one of the great forgotten campaigns of World War II, Operation Dragoon, the other D-Day. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. This is episode 16, The Other D-Day. I am your host, James Hauser, and I hope you guys are ready for today's story because it is awesome. We're going to go to World War II for the first time in this podcast and focus on one of the least famous but most important operations of the war, the Allied Invasion of Southern France, Operation Dragoon. Someone call Tom Hanks because we found some American World War II soldiers who haven't had a movie or miniseries made about them. Couple things just to get us going. This is not just history, but military history. There is some dark and bloody stuff going on. The podcast is PG-13. The language is clean. The content is not. All my sources, some images, some likely much-needed maps, and some commentary will be on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com. So if you want it, that's where you can find it. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, mistakes are my own. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. So let's dive into it. When Americans think of World War II in Europe, there is one engagement, one event, one battle that comes immediately to everybody's mind. And that is D-Day. Operation Overlord, June 6, 1944, the invasion of Normandy. It is the defining moment of the war, the biggest stepping stone on the road to defeating Nazi Germany, the great epic of American military history. And this is justified. The invasion of Normandy was one of the four or five most important battles of World War II, and it was an amazingly difficult and lethal battle. We could talk for hours about all the preparation, planning, difficulties, and events that went into Operation Overlord and the Battle of Normandy. Some people have talked for hours. It is deservedly an epic, and the heroism of everyone who took part deserves to be remembered. But, and you know I have a but, American memory of World War II in Europe tends to suffer from what I call Omaha Syndrome. The fact that D-Day kind of tends to overshadow everything else. There have probably been more books, movies, documentaries about D-Day than all the rest of the war in Europe put together. This doesn't just overshadow D-Day, but it also overshadows the much longer and much more costly Battle of Normandy that took place over the next two and a half months. And as important as it was, guys, D-Day and Normandy weren't the whole war. Not for the Americans, the British, the Canadians, the French, or anyone. The men and women whose efforts helped D-Day succeed and those who lost their lives in the process mattered. They mattered a lot but they weren't the only ones who mattered. I'm going to say this again today at the end because it strikes at the heart of what I'm trying to accomplish in this podcast overall. For everyone who fought and suffered in World War II, they had their own personal D-Day. Maybe they weren't on Omaha Beach. Maybe there was no movie made for them. Maybe they don't get the presidential visits to their cemeteries and get the Facebook posts commemorating the anniversaries of their battles. But that didn't mean their experience wasn't important. They experienced something like their own personal D-Day somewhere else, on some other day, in some other battlefield. 
World War II was the largest, most colossal, most destructive war in human history. It would be impossible for me to sum up every experience. I could do a podcast just called Unknown Soldiers of World War II, and I would never write a material. So I don't plan to touch on World War II that much in this podcast. That's not what I'm trying to do, especially since there's so much even less known stuff to talk about. But sometimes I come across something that I think is important that no one knows about, that people should know about. One of those things, my my forgotten battlefield of World War II is Operation Dragoon, the Allied invasion of southern France in August 1944, two months after D-Day. Operation Dragoon liberated two-thirds of southern France, virtually destroyed a German army, and made the invasion of Germany and the end of World War II possible. But it happened too close to D-Day and during some other dramatic events elsewhere, so it gets lost in the narrative. The towns and battles of southern France are not household names. There are no video games or miniseries or TV documentaries about it. But it was important. For many soldiers, whether they were American, British, Canadian, French, whether white or black or anything else, whether they were hardened commandos or French resistance fighters, this was their D-Day. Maybe it wasn't as important or as big or as epic as Normandy, but for all these soldiers, this was their Normandy. And their stories mattered too. Today, we'll be talking about Operation Dragoon, the invasion of southern France, the other D-Day. We're going to explain how this operation got planned, who was involved, and what kind of opposition they faced. We're going to see Allied forces, American, British, Canadian, French, and African, invade the French Riviera and engage in a tough, difficult campaign. And in a relative rarity for this podcast, this story has a happy ending, because we will see the liberation of much of France and the defeat of a Nazi army. And at the end... I will tell you why it matters. You should care. And I'm going to tell you why. And because this is an epic story of World War II, there will be breaks. These are your chance to pause, charge your headphones, make some bread, do the thing you need to do. So step into the Higgins boat, check your Tommy gun, and count your grenades. Because we're going on campaign. Where are we going, you ask? We're going to wind up on the sunny beaches of the French Riviera. But to understand how Allied troops ended up launching the other D-Day, we have to look at the regular D-Day, the famous D-Day. We know this story, right? USA, Britain, Canada, and friends, many friends, launched the invasion of Normandy that takes place on June 6, 1944. We've all seen Saving Private Ryan. We don't need to hear this story again. But the plan for D-Day originally included not one, but two invasions of France. In 1942, only weeks after the American entry into World War II, the US and Great Britain began planning their strategy to defeat Germany. And this was always going to mean the invasion of France. That was always the end goal. The initial plan called for a two-pronged attack. The first prong would be against northern France, against Normandy, originally codenamed Sledgehammer. The second would be against southern France in the Mediterranean, and it was codenamed Anvil, Sledgehammer and Anvil. Sounds like they go together, right? One would be, one would hold the Germans in place, the other one would smash them. It was a two-part assault. As the war dragged on from 1942 to 1943, the Allies continued with this preliminary plan, the Sledgehammer-Anvil combo. 
even as the Allies invaded first North Africa and then Italy, and even as Dwight D. Eisenhower took charge of the forces assembling in Britain, this combined two-pronged attack was the going plan for the invasion of France. But when more detailed planning began, problems started to arise. One problem was Winston Churchill. Never happy unless he had something to complain about, Winston Churchill hated Anvil. He thought that it was a distraction and a waste of resources that would be better used on his passion project, the Italian campaign, or on an invasion of the Balkans or Greece or some other Mediterranean country. The Americans, in return, thought all of these would be a waste of resources, and they hated Churchill's fetish for harebrained invasions of random European countries, which Churchill loved to do dating back to World War I. So the British were always lukewarm on the invasion of southern France. They gave it less than their full backing. But the biggest problem was resources. One of the most important but least exciting parts of military history and the military in general is logistics. Compared to big battles or tanks or heroic stories or great generals, logistics is just about the least sexy thing you can think of. But logistics is super important in every conflict, and it was super important in World War II. But no, there ain't gonna be no three-hour blockbuster made about World War II logistics, even though it was one of the most important elements of the story. Fact is, any amphibious invasion of France required X quantity of landing craft, a certain number of landing craft, and there just weren't enough landing craft to go around. The most important type was the LST, or landing ship tank, which could land large quantities of troops, cargo, or vehicles on an enemy beach without requiring port facilities. This wasn't one of the little Saving Private Ryan boats, this was a big boat that would just roll up onto the beach and disgorge tanks and huge amounts of supplies and trucks and all this material. And there were just never enough LSTs. They were flying off the shelves like toilet paper in a pandemic. The lack of LSTs was a constant bottleneck on Allied operations all over the world. They could only do so many things at a time because they only had so many LSTs. And all the top brass were arguing for months over how many LSTs they would need here in the Pacific, in the Atlantic, in the Mediterranean. Churchill himself said, The destinies of two great empires seem to be tied up in some goddamned things called LSTs. Churchill by this period in the war is basically always Oscar the Grouch. The D-Day plan called for landing six divisions in Normandy, and that required so many landing craft that none would be available for southern France. So without enough LSTs or other landing ships to launch two invasions, the plan got chopped down to one invasion. Sledgehammer Anvil was transformed into Overlord, the invasion of Normandy, the D-Day we all know and love. The Anvil plan was put on a shelf and gathered dust, seemingly destined to be forgotten. And it might have been. Anvil might have gone down the tube of history, never to be mentioned again, if American planners hadn't kept it in the backs of their minds, because they liked the plan. The two generals that kept Anvil on life support were General George C. Marshall, Chief of Staff of the Army and the great American strategist of World War II, I would love to do an episode on Marshall someday, and his protege, General Jacob Devers, the main American commander in the Mediterranean. Marshall kept Anvil in mind during the lead-up to D-Day. Endeavors continued to keep a little stockpile of supplies and maintain a little staff working on an invasion of southern France, keeping it on the back burner, you know, just in case. It was a good thing they did, too, because when D-Day did occur and the Allies and Nazis began the Battle of Normandy, it was even harder than they thought it would be. 
Not only were Allied forces taking tremendous losses in their slogging fight against the tough German resistance, but they were already experiencing supply problems. It was not easy hauling all those supplies over the Normandy beaches, which they were still doing weeks into the battle. If they didn't acquire good port facilities before the end of the year, the invasion of Europe might be choked off, not due to the Germans, but due to that nasty, unsexy problem of logistics, no matter what the Germans did. And the best seaport in France, the Port of Marseille, was on the southern coast of the French Riviera. Shame there wasn't a plan just sitting around for an invasion that could secure that port and liberate the southern half of the country from Nazi rule. Oh wait, there was. And now that D-Day was over, there were suddenly more than enough landing craft to go around. So on July 14th, 1944, almost one month after the Allies stormed the beaches of Normandy, the High Command gave the go-ahead to Anvil. This was over Churchill's furious protests, since it would take troops away from his beloved Italian campaign. But the Americans hated the Italian campaign like it had taken their lunch money. America held most of the cards in the alliance by this point in the war. They were putting in most of the resources, so they got their way. The old Operation Anvil was renamed Operation Dragoon, allegedly because Churchill complained that he had been dragooned into it. I'm not sure whether that was a compliment or an insult naming the operation that he hated after him. The invasion of southern France was a go. But the big D-Day had taken two years and some change to plan, prepare, and perfect. It had been priority number one for the Allies, requiring an enormous amount of effort and resources, and it had been a slaughter. The Allies would only have one month to plan Operation Dragoon, and they would have to scrape up an invasion force from whatever was available. It was the red-headed stepchild of Allied operations in World War II. Operation Dragoon would be held together by rubber bands and duct tape from beginning to end. Now, by July 1944, the Allies were getting pretty darn good at amphibious warfare. They'd had plenty of experience. The Pacific, Africa, Italy, D-Day. So when the Allies planned Operation Dragoon, they had a lot of hard lessons to look back on and learn from. But the problem was that there just wasn't a lot of time. The landing was going to take place in a month. The landing beaches were widely separated, overlooked by high ground. Supplies had been stockpiled, but not enough. There weren't enough landing craft to do everything absolutely efficiency. Still, still lacking those landing craft. The operation was like fourth or fifth priority for air power and naval power, basically using whatever was left over. Intelligence, planning, preparation were all way behind what you'd expect for a major amphibious invasion. And the units that were being scraped together for the operation were a mixed bag drawn from all over the Mediterranean. So who did the Allies have for Operation Dragoon? The leaders of D-Day are well-known names, even to people who don't know much about World War II. Eisenhower, Bradley, Patton, Montgomery. But who were the leaders of the other D-Day? We've already mentioned General Devers, who would be the overall commander of 6th Army Group headquartered back in Africa. Devers is one of America's great forgotten generals. He'd been largely responsible for organizing and training the American armored forces, the tank forces, after Pearl Harbor. The main allied element of Operation Dragoon would be the American 7th Army, previously commanded by Patton, now commanded by Lieutenant General Alexander Patch, a lanky quiet man who had already led troops on Guadalcanal against the Japanese. The force that carried out the initial landing would be the 6th Corps, U.S. 6th Corps, under Major General Lucian Truscott. 
As his units trained for Operation Dragoon, Truscott could be seen striding around the training area, wearing his enameled two-star helmet, lucky cavalry boots, and white scarf. Truscott was an experienced, extremely capable commander and one of the best trainers in the U.S. Army. So Generals Devers, Patch, and Truscott, in that hierarchy, top to bottom, are our main com American commanders. We won't see much of Devers. He doesn't really take command until September. But Patch and Truscott, those are our Americans, and they were a very effective, quietly competent command team. The main assault force was Truscott's 6th Army Corps, made up of three American infantry divisions, the 3rd Infantry, 36th Infantry, and 45th Infantry. All of them were veteran units, but they were tired and full of new recruits after months of tough fighting in Italy. The 3rd Infantry Division's commander was Major General John Iron Mike O'Daniel, a hard-bitten officer who told his soldiers, You can take it from me, boys. Hate the Germans. Hate the bastards. Cut your initials into their goddamn faces. Can you tell that O'Daniel served under Patton? Because he definitely served under Patton. But the 36th Division's commander, General John Dalquist, was a newcomer, an unknown entity who would not perform well in the coming campaign. Much like the bigger D-Day, the main invasion force would be accompanied by airborne and commando units. The problem was that the Allies didn't exactly have a spare airborne division sitting around, so they would have to make one. General Devers picked experienced commando leader General Robert T. Frederick to head the 1st Airborne Task Force. Frederick asked him, How long will we have to get ready for the mission? And Devers told him that he had five weeks. Well, where are my airborne troops? And Devers just smiled and said, So far, you are the only one we have. Eventually, a hodgepodge of separate American and British airborne units scattered all across the Mediterranean would come together under Frederick's command, even though there weren't enough spare parachutes to carry out all the practice jumps required. Like I said, all of this was held together with rubber bands and duct tape. Several critical points around the landing beaches would have to be secured before the big invasion took place, and these would be assaulted by French commando forces and the joint American-Canadian 1st Special Service Force. They spent the few weeks before Operation Dragoon training to scale cliffs and conduct lightning raids, and they were only told their objectives hours before the operation began. But after Truscott's American Infantry Divisions, the Airborne Task Force, and the commando units all stormed ashore, the task of taking the major seaports, Marseille and Toulon, would fall to the second wave. And the second wave would consist of the French Armée B. As we all know, most of the French army had been forced to surrender after the German invasion of 1940. But the French had built up an army in exile, with supplies and equipment provided by the United States, and by 1944 there were multiple French divisions standing by. The French had no intention of being left out of the operation to liberate their homeland, and they would eventually make up the majority of Dragoon's combat troops. Some of the French soldiers had been outside of France when the surrender had taken place, and some had snuck out of France after the surrender. But a lot of these troops, almost 70%, were not white Frenchmen, but they were colonial subjects from the French Empire. So when I say French, I mean all these guys. The French Infantry Divisions included the 1st Infantry and 1st Armored Divisions, the 3rd Algerian Infantry Division, and the 9th Colonial Infantry Division. The 9th Colonial consisted almost entirely of black soldiers from Sub-Saharan Africa, including Senegal, Ivory Coast, Mali, and Gabon. 
There were also three detachments of Tabors, fierce Moroccan soldiers whose fighting skills terrified the Germans. It was almost an African army more than it was a French one. But even then, there was a battalion of troops from the French Pacific island of Tahiti. How did all these dudes end up fighting for some random European country? Ah, uh, imperialism. The French, or dudes from a dozen different nations fighting under the French flag, whatever, would be led by General Jean de Lautre de Tassigny, whose career gives the eternal lie to the myth of the cowardly Frenchman. De Lautre had taken a lance to the chest, leading the cavalry charge in the first weeks of World War I, and he had been wounded five times during the Battle of Verdun. After the Germans invaded France in 1940, de Lautre, who had been a major general, eventually wound up in a prison. But he sawed through the bars, broke out, and escaped to London. General de Lattre was charismatic, flamboyant, and fearless, a love-him-or-hate-him personality who would tear around in a car, asking every soldier he ran into, What have you done for France? Because this guy took a lance to the chest and broke out of a Gestapo prison for France, so whatever you said wasn't going to match up. But the French part of Operation Dragoon would not be limited to the forces in uniform. The French resistance, the underground movement of French civilians that fought the Nazi occupation, was stronger in southern France than in anywhere else. Thousands of resistance fighters, also known as the French Forces of the Interior, or FFI, waged their guerrilla war from the mountains. And they were an absolute menace. One French officer working with the FFI reported, no isolated German car, no courier could travel the highways. No control existed outside the garrison towns. The Germans are practically prisoners in their garrisons. After a couple of months of this situation, the German soldier is bewildered, demoralized, fooled. We know this. We steal his mail. He looks with fear on these mountains, these forests, these crags, these narrow valleys from which any moment a thunderbolt can crash. The French resistance had been building up its strength for months, assisted by allied special operatives from the US and Britain. This included agents like the legendary Virginia Hall, the one-legged OSS agent and actual superhero. She was currently coordinating French resistance efforts in the mountains of southern France, cutting telegraph wires and sabotaging trucks and railroads in advance of Operation Dragoon. Allied air power would also play a critical role in the invasion. The Mediterranean Allied Air Forces under General Ira Eaker deployed the 12th Tactical Air Force to support the Dragoon landings, an assembly of medium bombers and fighter bombers that could plaster German positions and cut their supply lines. In the weeks before Dragoon began, the 12th Tactical Air Force was busy knocking out every single bridge over the Rhone River, which divided southern France in two, and would cripple German mobility when the invasion actually began. The big problem was that the range of close air support was limited thanks to the distance of the airfields. They were all on Corsica or in Africa. Once the Allies were miles past the landing beaches and to the French interior, they would lose that close air support until new airfields could be constructed. So this was the crazy mixed bag of units that would try and liberate southern France in August 1944. They had been scraped together from every random corner of the Allied arsenal for a last-minute plan that, due to its lack of supplies and reinforcements, stood every chance of disaster. But how about their opponents? German General Johannes Blaskowitz commanded Army Group G, which was responsible for the defense of southern France. 
Uh, General Blaskowitz was on Hitler's naughty list. He had protested against Nazi war crimes against Polish civilians in 1939, after which Hitler labeled him a troublemaker. Yep, this was Nazi Germany. You could get blacklisted for not being evil enough, but you were unlikely to be executed. So Blaskowitz wasn't a super Nazi. The commander of his 19th army, General Friedrich Weisse, was a super Nazi, and it would be Weisse who led the main resistance to Operation Dragoon. Now, these guys didn't have a lot to work with. Germany had almost no naval or air power left. The Luftwaffe would be a non-entity during Operation Dragoon, no German air cover. All the best ground units had been sent north to fight in Normandy, which left the German forces in southern France pretty thin. By 1944, Germany was pretty much out of manpower and resources, since a generation of German boys had been left face down in the snows of Russia. Most of Blaskowitz's German units were composed of older reservists and young recruits, with their weaponry being a hodgepodge of captured Italian, Czech, or Russian artillery pieces and small arms. Most of them didn't even have the legendary MG42 machine gun, having to make do with old French or Italian machine guns. And get this, a lot of these units weren't even German. Like I said, Germany was scraping the bottom of the manpower barrel by 1944. By this point, they were punching through that barrel to get into the dirt. Many of the battalions guarding the coast of southern France were what were known as Osttruppen, or Ostlegionen. These units were made up of Russian POWs who had volunteered to fight for Germany rather than starve to death in the concentration camps. Not a super great sign for your war effort when you're arming your own POWs to fight for you. There were battalions of Armenians and Ukrainians in Army Group G's order of battle. Armenians and Ukrainians who were not super psyched to fight for Germany in France against America. The Germans put very little confidence in these troops and they wouldn't even live up to that. Think about how wild this is for a second though. Germany is using Armenians to defend France from the uh, Senegalese and the Algerians who are coming to liberate France under French command. What? Anyway. But the Germans did have tough units willing to fight. There were the standard infantry divisions who weren't the best and had limited equipment, but they could put up a fierce resistance. But the most formidable German unit in southern France was the 11th Panzer Division, a tough veteran force that was rebuilding after it had been nearly annihilated in the hellstorm that was the Eastern Front. Before Normandy, before D-Day, France had been where units came back from Russia to catch a breath and rebuild. The 11th Panzer had a full veteran battalion of Panzer IV and Panzer V tanks. The Panzer V, aka the Panther, was an all-around meat-eater of a vehicle that terrified Allied tank crews. And the Germans would fight from behind a series of strong defenses. The bunkers, minefields, and obstacles that dotted the coast of southern France posed serious obstacles to any invader, just like in Normandy. The Wehrmacht divisions manning the beaches had machine guns, flat guns, coastal, and field artillery. Even a relatively weak German force could deal serious death to the Allied troops landing on the rocky beaches if they wanted to. Nevertheless, Blaskowitz was worried about an Allied invasion. His intelligence services had picked up an imminent attack, and he'd been asking for permission to withdraw back to a better defensive line. But Adolf Hitler consistently refused to give up an inch of ground even when the mission seemed hopeless. Blaskowitz, already on Hitler's naughty list and aware that the Fuhrer was super paranoid after the July 20 assassination attempt, had no choice but to just say, Jawohl, mein Fuhrer, and hold the line. 
the Germans would be quite willing to defend the beaches of southern France when the Allies came knocking. So Operation Dragoon would be a risky undertaking. A diverse set of units were slapping together a plan on extremely short notice. There was almost no time to prepare, supplies and landing craft were short, air support was limited, and worst of all, the Germans knew they were coming. It should be no surprise that Operation Dragoon's leaders were stressed almost to the breaking point. Winston Churchill was gloomy, convinced that it would be a disaster. Admiral Don Moon, who was slated to command a naval invasion force during Dragoon, was a nervous wreck convinced that the landings would fail. On the morning of August 5th, 10 days before the operation was set to launch, Admiral Moon was found in his cabin, a 45 in his right hand, eyes wide open. Admiral Henry Hewitt, Dragoon's naval commander, wrote to Moon's wife and four children that, He was a casualty of this war just as much as if he had been killed in action. Military suicides are by no means a modern phenomenon. The American GIs marched to the docks of Naples, past throngs of Italian street vendors, prostitutes, and refugees to board their transports. They thumbed through pocket guides to France, checked their ammunition, adjusted their rucksacks, and whispered prayers. They played cards, bragged about sexual exploits, or just tried to catch a nap. Older sergeants, veterans of Africa and Sicily and Anzio, told their newbies what to expect. They all tried their best to ignore Axis Sally, the Berlin-based radio host who bragged that a warm welcome awaited all those American boys in southern France. On August 13th, the convoys left their starting positions and steamed for the French Riviera. There were 885 ships and landing craft, with over a thousand smaller landing craft strapped to them. The ships carried 151,000 soldiers, both Americans and French, of all colors and creeds. They also carried 21,400 trucks, armored vehicles, and construction vehicles. 9,000 American and British paratroopers waited to board their planes and meet southern France feet first. On one of the ships was none other than Winston Churchill himself, anxious, bitter, convinced that this whole invasion was not only a terrible idea, but that it would be a bloody failure. The other D-Day would be August 15th, 1944. Operation Dragoon was underway. August 15, 1944, was just another day in World War II. Almost 500 miles to the north of Operation Dragoon's landing beaches, the Normandy campaign was coming to a close as Patton's tanks raced across northern France and the Germans were being surrounded in the Falaise pocket. Soviet armies were grinding the Germans down in enormous battles in Belorussia and eastern Poland. The ovens of Auschwitz continued to blaze. The Allies fought horrific struggles with Japan and Burma and New Guinea. The finishing touches were being placed on the atomic bomb. Hitler's thousand-year Reich had nine more months left, and the Japanese Empire was a year away from its final surrender. As all this was going on, that invasion fleet steamed towards the coast of southern France. On August 14th, hours before the other D-Day was set to launch, BBC radio stations in Algiers and London sent out a coded message. 
Nancy has a stiff neck. The huntsman is hungry. Gabby is going to lie down in the grass. Sounds like gibberish, right? But the French Resistance have been waiting for this exact line of gibberish. When French Resistance member Henri Foray heard that gibberish, he and another man snuck out that night and blew up the main underground telephone or telegraph cable between Marseille and Paris. Other resistance teams did the same thing all over southern France, so that none of the German headquarters would be able to have that hard communication during the critical hours of August 15th. A summer night on the French Riviera usually means romance, or at least something that passes for romance. But on August 15th, 1944, violence was on the menu. 40 minutes past midnight, the first Allied troops set foot on the coast of southern France. These were the men of the French African Commando Group, who splashed ashore near Cape Negre. The French commando team scaled the nearby cliffs, but soon came under attack by the Germans. Sergeant Noel Texier was mortally wounded and fell from the cliff, one of Operation Dragoon's first casualties. The French commandos slugged it out with German machine guns and bunkers, and by morning they had achieved their objective, roadblocking a major highway leading to the invasion beaches. Just off the coast, the first special service force hit the beaches of the Ile du Levant. 1,300 American and Canadian commandos rushed from the boats to scale the cliffs and surprise a German artillery battery that could have wrecked the Allied invasion. To their surprise, it turned out that the so-called battery was a set of drain pipes disguised as guns. The commandos shrugged and overwhelmed the few German forces they found, a mop-up operation that would last several days. As the commandos' gunfire broke the night, the low drone of C-47 Skytrains hummed over the warm French evening. 9,000 paratroopers descended around the French towns of Draguignan and Le Mouy. The first men to drop were Pathfinders. Their job was to find the proper landing zone and set up a radar beacon to guide the main forces in their approach. But only the British Pathfinder teams managed to get to the right location. The American Pathfinder units were dropped all over the place, including an entire plane's worth of poor men who jumped to their death in the sea. The 509th and 517th Parachute Regiments were scattered over a massive area, and only the British 2nd Parachute Brigade managed to get close enough to seize its objective. Brigadier General Robert T. Frederick jumped alongside his men, the commander of this slapped-together airborne division, only to find himself alone. He ventured through the foggy night until he spotted what looked like a German soldier. Frederick jumped on the man, prepared to break his neck, only to hear a very upset British voice exclaiming, I say, old boy, you are a bit rough. Despite all the mishaps, the American and British airborne forces isolated most of the main German command posts from the forces on the beach. They had landed on top of, surrounded, and captured the very surprised staff of the German 67th Corps. Not bad for a quote-unquote division that hadn't existed a month ago. The sun rose just off the coast of France as Generals Patch and Truscott stalked the decks of their landing ships, as did the moody Winston Churchill. At 0650 hours, the big guns of Admiral Hewitt's battleships and cruisers began to boom, sending 14 and 18-inch shells crashing into the French landmass. Warplanes screamed overhead, P-47 Thunderbolts and British Spitfires to strafe and plaster the awaiting Germans. Three American infantry divisions piled into Higgins boats and LSTs and began to steam towards the coast. 
One American soldier from the 36th Infantry Division remembered the landings. This is kind of a long quote, but he tells it better than I could. The motors took on a new, deep-throated roar, and the square prows rose higher out of the water as we headed into the beach. To a GI landing in the assault wave, it is very important to hit the beach with dry feet. The axiom that old invasion troops follow is get off the beach fast, and it's tough enough trying to move fast when you're loaded down with 90 pounds of equipment without having 100 pounds of water sloshing around in your shoes and pants. Now we were 2,000 yards offshore, and the great rocket ships began to send their screeching cargo into the air. The sea was rolling lightly, and the increased speed threw a fine salt spray into our face. Now the water became rough, and the boat lurched violently from side to side. The shore disappeared completely behind a heavy curtain of smoke, fog, and spray. By now, the feeling of anticipation and fear that is in every soldier's heart and mind as he approaches an invasion was gone. Two minutes to eight o'clock. The skipper opened the throttle on the powerful marine motor all the way. Quieter now. Occasional chatter of a machine gun. Suddenly, a rocky coast loomed up ahead of us, and the skipper yelled, Brace yourself! as the boat crashed up onto the rocky beach. Eleven battalions of GIs poured onto Dragoon's assault beaches, all three divisions hitting the beach at approximately 0800 hours. They were accompanied by DD tanks, Sherman tanks outfitted with an inflatable amphibious kit that made them look like toddlers wearing water wings. Some tanks hit mines or were knocked out by German artillery, lighting up with flames and smoke. Behind them, ramps dropped and American soldiers rushed onto the rocky Riviera, ready to charge into the teeth of machine gun fire. But this would not be a repeat of Omaha Beach, as the American generals feared. It would not be a repeat of Gallipoli or Anzio, as Churchill feared. Because the GIs came ashore with very little trouble. The 45th Infantry Division in the center ran into barely any opposition. The bewildered Polish and Russian conscripts in their path gave up almost immediately. Imagine some poor Ukrainian kid who just volunteered for this gig to get out of Bergen-Belsen and sees these guys coming ashore and he's just like, nope, 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 and immediately throws his hands up. That was the case across most of Dragoon's invasion beaches. The 3rd Infantry Division had it almost as easy, with a few exceptions. One of those exceptions was a short, skinny NCO in the 15th Infantry Regiment, 19-year-old Staff Sergeant Audi Murphy. If you don't know much about this guy, I'll sum him up as a real-life John Rambo with the added handicap of Great Depression malnutrition. Sergeant Murphy led his rifle platoon over the beaches and into the French countryside, where his men came under fire from a German machine gun and went scrambling for cover. Audi Murphy took out one machine gun nest single-handedly and forced the other to raise a white flag. But when one of his soldiers, Private Laddie Tipton, stood up to take the surrender of that German machine gun nest, he was killed by a German sniper. And then Aldi Murphy went into berserker mode, killing every German he could find, firing his machine gun from the hip in a one-man assault like something out of a shooter game. When the fight was over, Murphy went back to Tipton's corpse, laid his head on the pillow, then broke out into uncontrollable crying. For this action, Staff Sergeant Aldi Murphy would be awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. And this wasn't even the craziest thing he would do in the war. The only heavy German resistance on the other D-Day, the only thing that could be comparable to Normandy, came on the right of the American assault, where the 36th Infantry Division had to cross thick minefields, barbed wire, and difficult strongpoints. 
But with assistance from Allied bombers and especially the freight train-sized barrages of naval gunfire, the 36th Division slogged their way through the German positions. One landing beach, Camel Red, was so well fortified that the local naval commander called an audible and diverted the American forces to another site. Though Truscott was furious since this threw off the whole schedule, the naval commander might have saved hundreds of American lives. Either way, the landings and airdrops of Operation Dragoon met with far less opposition than the Allies had feared. The Germans were shocked and disoriented by the firepower and the speed of the assault, and all the American divisions quickly moved inland with few hiccups. Allied tanks were quickly unloaded from the big LSTs, and they clanked into France alongside the infantry, shooting up strong points and blitzing into French towns and villas. By the end of the day, the Americans had overshot most of their original D-Day objectives. Over 60,000 Allied troops and 6,735 vehicles had been landed, along with 50,000 tons of supplies. The Allies were ashore in southern France. In the words of U.S. Naval historian Samuel Elliott Morrison, Dragoon had been an example of an almost perfect amphibious operation from the point of view of training, timing, Army-Navy-Air Force cooperation, performance, and results. Allied casualties had been extremely light compared to expectations, with only 529 dead, compared to 4,414 dead on the bigger D-Day. The majority of these dead in Operation Dragoon were from airborne accidents rather than German fire. Despite all the difficulties, concerns, anxieties, and last-minute preparations, Operation Dragoon had begun as a roaring success. And remember, this could have been a lot worse if the planning had been bad, if that assault had been launched. It was the planning and the preparation that made this thing so light on casualties. It could have been a lot worse. Within two days, the 6th Corps had linked up with most of the airborne units, in some cases rescuing them at literally the last minute. American columns of tanks and trucks streaked up the highways and broke through German positions to rescue surrounded paratroopers. There was also the French resistance. Everywhere Allied forces appeared, battalions of resistance fighters came streaming out of the woodwork to join the GIs as they rooted the Nazis out of their homeland. French women and children mobbed the Americans as they pushed inland, giving them food and often wine, which is maybe not the most helpful thing to give combat troops in this situation, but that's the French, what are you gonna do? The Germans struggled to respond to the invasion, but they had problems. Lots of problems. The French resistance had severed most of their communications, and the Allied paratroopers had done the rest. The Germans had to resort to radio for all of their communications, and they were broadcasting in the open, which meant that these were all picked up by Allied intelligence, especially the top-secret decryptors from the Ultra program operating out of Bletchley Park in England. Sometimes the Allies received German orders before the Germans did. Blaskowitz and Weisse tried to organize a counterattack against the beachhead. That was German doctrine. Try and stop the Allies at the waterline. But it was already too late for that. The Allies were moving inland too fast, and the Germans were swamped by the speed of the American assault. Mobility was restricted by the fact that all the bridges had been blown up by Allied bombers or the French resistance. The 11th Panzer Division was trying to hurry east and counterattack, but it had been on the west side of the Rhone River. It had to slip all its heavy equipment, including its tanks and half-tracks, across the Rhone on wooden ferries and raft because all the bridges were blown. And Allied air power was everywhere, strafing, bombing, and pounding the Nazis into oblivion. 
So hours after Operation Dragoon, Blaskowitz was thinking less about defeating the Allies and more about how to get Army Group G out of this mess in one piece. All he needed was permission to withdraw from Hitler. The German position was already falling apart in northern France thanks to Patton's breakout, and now southern France was on the verge of disaster as well. Even Hitler, who called August 15th the worst day of his life due to the mass surrender on the beaches, had to admit that southern France could not be held. On August 17th, Blaskowitz received permission to pull Army Group G back into northern France, with some caveats. Marseille and Toulon were to be held at all costs. These port cities would provide a big boost to Allied logistics, and the longer the Germans held them, the better. Blaskowitz began to order every other German unit from the Atlantic coast to the Italian border to begin their retreat. The Germans marched and drove as fast as they could towards Route 7, the main north-south highway in eastern France, their only means of escape. On the American side, things were looking great. The Sixth Corps was making quicker progress than anyone had expected. They had the Nazis on the run. General Truscott was convinced that he could even outdo Patton, whose tanks were racing across northern France at this very moment. And on August 17th, Patch's 7th Army Headquarters received intelligence the Germans were about to withdraw. This was, of course, thanks to Ultra, who had decrypted Hitler's message to Blaskowitz and told Allied Headquarters immediately. Patch and Truscott agreed that the time was ripe to exploit their success. The Allies might have an opportunity to bag the entire German force in southern France. If they could cut the main German line of retreat on Route 7, they stood a good chance of destroying a German army of almost 190,000 men. And Truscott had a pursuit force on hand. Just as with the Airborne Division, the Americans had no armored divisions to spare for Operation Dragoon. So just like Devers had improvised an airborne division, Truscott improvised an armored brigade. General Frederick Butler's Task Force Butler consisted of a motorized infantry battalion, a tank battalion, a mechanized cavalry squadron, and a whole bundle of supporting arms. The mission of General Butler's homemade armored brigade was to thunder north and block off the German line of retreat on Route 7. Truscott's plan was extremely risky, like all the rest of Dragoon held together with rubber bands and duct tape. It was almost lunacy for Butler to try and stop the retreat of a German field army with his improvised armored brigade, full of units, you know, just tugged away from different divisions and different regiments. But he was going to try. Task Force Butler galloped north, advancing faster than the Germans could retreat, choosing the path of least resistance and bypassing Nazi roadblocks. The Allied vehicles, olive drab and emblazoned with white stars, rolled through the heat of the French summer on a triumphant pursuit to the Rhone River. On August 20th, six days after the other D-Day, Truscott sent Butler an explicit order. You will move at first light 21st August with all possible speed to Montelimer. Block all routes of withdrawal up the Rhone Valley in that vicinity. 36th Division follows you. The race was on. Could the Americans slam the trap shut on the Germans? But even as Task Force Butler raced to close said trap, another drama was unfolding to the south. The French army had come home. The French came ashore on the Dragoon beaches on August 16th, a day earlier than planned. The rapid success of the invasion allowed the Allies to step up their timetable. 
Patch and Truscott both wanted to push the tempo to keep the Germans on their heels. The real objectives of Dragoon, the great seaports of Marseille and Toulon, lay untaken to the west, defended by 35,000 German soldiers. Toulon would be the first and toughest target. It was surrounded by German fortresses and siege artillery, including tank turrets remounted into concrete bunkers, and guns taken off of scavenged French warships. Admiral Hewitt's naval task force was putting a torrent of heavy caliber shells into Toulon's fortifications, but only a ground attack could force the city's surrender. General Jean de Lattre de Tassigny and his multi-ethnic French army were up to the challenge. Delatra came marching onto the beaches in kepi yellow gloves and a swagger stick, collaring young French soldiers and yelling, Toulon awaits you. Delatra's units immediately started racing west to surround and conquer the great seaports of southern France. General Delatra de Tassigny might have been a dramatic Frenchman, but he was also an extremely competent general. Rather than just trying to blitz into Toulon, he divided his forces up into battle groups that would race around both Toulon and Marseille and isolate them. Get your hands on the nut first, then crack it. It wasn't easy. German anti-tank guns destroyed a company of French tanks from the get-go, an experience that the Allies had become depressingly familiar with in Normandy. In Hier, a dozen miles east of Toulon, a battalion of increasingly reluctant Armenian Ostruppen defended Gulf Hotel against the French advance. Only a bayonet charge by a battalion of troops from the Pacific island of Tahiti forced their surrender. The French surrounded Toulon by August 21st, with lots of help from the French resistance, who were giving the Germans inside the city just about all they could handle. One German NCO in Toulon had this to say. The situation in general is very serious, and we can expect anything. If there weren't these damned terrorists, things wouldn't be half so bad. I am now in the Toulon region, which we will defend as much as we can with our feeble forces. The enemy is greatly superior in numbers and is constantly landing new forces. On our side, however, the supply lines are cut by the terrorists, who come out of the mountains and execute one coup de man after another. He keeps calling them terrorists. You notice that? Something, something, one man's terrorist, one man's freedom fighter, you get it. The French began to claw their way into Toulon, one barricade, bunker, and minefield at a time. They used bayonets, mortars, flamethrowers, and white phosphorus grenades to clear the Germans out street by street. The black troops of the 9th Colonial Division and the Muslims of the 3rd Algerian Division quickly punctured the German resistance in Toulon. The advance into the city went well ahead of the battle plan. Things were just going too fast for the Germans to respond. One general managed to drive into and out of the city center in his jeep. And when he got back, he told his soldiers that he'd been kissed by 200 girls already and to get in there or they were gonna miss all the fun. Under pressure from the outside by the suicidally brave French soldiers and under pressure from the inside by resistance, sabotage, and snipers, the Germans were forced to pull back from the streets into their fortresses. On August 23rd, a French sailor and a pretty young woman raised the tricolor together over the Place de la Liberté. Toulon's fortresses and strong points held out for a few more days. Hitler had ordered them to defend to the last, but naval gunfire and the threat of imminent assault soon had the shocked German defenders raising their hands and marching into captivity. One fortress only surrendered when Colonel Raoul Salon threatened to send the Senegalese in to massacre them all, 
essentially using racial stereotypes to scare a bunch of racists into raising the white flag. By August 28th, the last fortress surrendered, and Toulon had fallen, a full week ahead of schedule. And only 36 miles to the west, Marseille had fallen at almost exactly the same time. Marseille was the second largest city in France, a much bigger city than Toulon. It was not supposed to be tackled until after Toulon had been secured, according to the plan. But when Delatre's tanks and infantry came within earshot of the city, the French resistance jumped the gun. Without any outside help or outside approval, the Maquis went into open revolt, throwing up barricades and attacking isolated groups of Germans. French people and building barricades in the streets. Name a more iconic duo, right? The Germans were completely paralyzed by the French resistance. Even large units could barely move down the streets without being attacked from every direction by old Frenchmen with their World War I pistols or bushy-haired young French women with stolen submachine guns. There's some great photographic evidence from this battle that clearly shows French women in tiny skirts and berets just sprinting down back alleys with pistols and rifles. But this uprising forced General Delatre to step up his timetable. Some of his subordinates, contrary to his orders, began to filter Moroccan troops and French armored units into the city. Regiments of Moroccan Tabors maneuvered their way through the German defenses, outflanking them, using bayonets and long knives to clear the Germans out and moving towards the city's strong points. This was a little reckless since the fight for Toulon was still getting started and who knew how long that would take. But Delatre threw caution to the wind and decided to lean in. Instead of taking Toulon, then Marseille, he could take both at the same time. General Delatre gave the go-ahead to capture the city. The assault began. On August 23rd, a column of French Sherman tanks and Algerian infantry battled their way up the Boulevard de la Corderie, their destination being the massive hilltop cathedral of Marseille, the Notre Dame de la Garde. The tanks strained to climb the steep hill, and only four Shermans managed to get to the top and position themselves around the cathedral. One tank named Joan of Arc was knocked out by a rocket launcher, and another, the Jordan, hit a mine and was immobilized. The commander of the disabled tank, Lieutenant Louis Lyot, sent the rest of his crew into safety before jumping out of his tank and grabbing a French flag. He sprinted through German fire, raced into the cathedral, and raised his nation's flag over the Basilica of Notre Dame de la Garde. Louis Lyot's flag was seen across the city and the tide of the battle turned. The Algerians, French, and Moroccans forced their way past the last resistance. While battleships continued to blast at the remaining fortresses from the coast, General Delatre himself rode into the city and set up his headquarters in a hotel courtyard. He and his officers laid their maps on one of the cafe tables and planned the final actions of the battle, right next to celebrating girls in dresses sipping cocktails. The last Germans in Marseille surrendered on August 28th, the same day that resistance ceased in Toulon. France's second largest city had fallen a full month earlier than planned, and the people were jubilant, ringing church bells and pouring out in their thousands to welcome the liberators. The French could proudly say that, even if they'd been helped by their allies, their own troops had done the liberating in Marseille and Toulon. They had taken 4,000 casualties in the process, including 800 dead, but they had also captured 37,000 German prisoners. Side note, You'll get more examples throughout this podcast, hopefully, but the meme of the cowardly French, you know, oh, the French are cowards, they like to surrender, really needs to go away. 
If the last like 10 minutes haven't taught you anything, it should be that. When the celebrations were over, the French immediately got to work preparing the ports for operation. It wouldn't be easy. The Germans had done their best to sabotage the facilities as much as possible. But within a month, cargo ships would be operating the Marseille Harbor. The Allied invasion of southern France had achieved its objectives in record time. But even as the liberation of Marseille and Toulon took place, Operation Dragoon was reaching its climax to the north. Task Force Butler had moved to block the German retreat, and the Germans were doing their best to break out. The Battle of Montelimar would see the most difficult fighting of the other D-Day. While the French were liberating the main objectives of Operation Dragoon, General Lucien Truscott's 6th Corps was hunting a more dangerous game, the German 19th Army. General Friedrich Weiss's men were in full retreat from all across southern France, and all their paths converged on Route 7. Almost 140,000 German soldiers were trying to escape up this narrow road, and Truscott was determined to cut them off. Task Force Butler, the homemade armored brigade, was racing for the Rhone River near a town called Montelimar. In better, happier, non-World War II times, Montelimar was known for the quality of its nougat. But in August 1944, it was more important for its geography. Montelimar lay on the east bank of the Rhone River, right along Route 7, and to its north was a complex set of hills and ridges. If the Allies could seize and hold this high ground, they would put the entire German escape route under their guns. That was why Truscott ordered Task Force Butler to Montelimar, and he also ordered General John Dahlquist's 36th Infantry Division to follow. The 3rd Infantry Division was coming up from the south, the hammer forcing the Germans onto the anvil at Montelimar. The stage was set for the climax of Operation Dragoon. Task Force Butler arrived on the hills overlooking Montelimar late in the afternoon of August 21st, seven days after the other D-Day. Light tanks and armored cars were the first to arrive, crashing down narrow French farmers' roads and shooting up German convoys fleeing north. Soon Butler's artillery pieces were lobbing 105mm shells into the packed trucks and horse carts on Route 7, blowing up road bridges as machine guns ripped into canvas and metal and flesh. Soon, 50 Wehrmacht vehicles blazed like torches in the setting sun. The Americans had cut the German line of retreat. Hooray! But would they be able to hold it? Because that was about to be a problem. A lot of pressure was building up from the south. Best thing I have to compare it to is trying to keep the lid on a bottle of Diet Coke and Mentos. 140,000 desperate German troops would be pushing up from the south, and only Butler's understrength task force of a few thousand men was standing in their way. They could tear up convoys of trucks and rear area troops, but soon the infantry would start to arrive, full of Eastern Front veterans and hardcore professionals. And then there was the 11th Panzer Division, with its powerful battalion of Panzer and Panther tanks and its arsenal of light armored vehicles. Task Force Butler would have to fight like the devil to keep the lid on that bottle. 
Reinforcements were headed their way. General Dalquist's 36th Infantry Division was ordered to move as fast as possible and reinforce Butler's men, the tiny little lid keeping all that pressure locked up on, on Route 7. But Dahlquist didn't seem to understand the urgency of the situation. He dragged his feet, prompting furious outbursts from General Truscott. At one point, Truscott flew personally to Dahlquist's headquarters, and finding the general absent, chewed out his staff instead. Don't you understand? This is the opportunity of a lifetime. We can trap the entire German Corps and 11th Panzer Division with a few men and guns. Every minute is precious. Now get moving. But the units of the 36th Infantry Division would only arrive in dribs and drabs as the battle at Montelimer grew in intensity. This was partly because of that thing we talked about at the beginning of this episode, that, that unsexy, uninteresting, super important thing, logistics. Operation Dragoon had achieved bigger success, and 6th Corps had moved faster than anyone anticipated. But this very success created new problems. The planners had expected weeks of hard fighting before the Allies got this far. So the supply arrangements had prioritized ammunition over fuel. They expected more shooting, less moving. But at this point, the Americans needed to move more than anything else. They needed, to, they needed fuel. 6th Corps was consuming 100,000 gallons of gasoline daily. Supply trucks had to make a 300-mile round trip to supply the Ford units at Montelimer. By the middle of the battle, the American soldiers were only getting two-thirds of their daily rations because what space the trucks had was needed for ammunition and fuel. Lots of ammunition and fuel as the battle at Montelimer heated up. Truscott was pushing reinforcements and supplies to General Butler's tiny force as fast as he could, but they weren't arriving fast enough and German forces were building up in his sector. The American force at Montelimer had a battalion of infantry, 30 Sherman tanks, 12 tank destroyers, and 12 self-propelled artillery pieces. They had come very far, very fast, 159 miles from the Dragoon Landing beaches, and they were at the end of a very long supply line and they had outrun their air cover. The flyboys couldn't reach Montelimer with their spitfires and thunderbolts, and the GIs were about to feel that lack of air cover within a few hours. Because the Germans were coming, and coming fast. General Weissa panicked when he learned that Task Force Butler sat on his line of retreat, and he ordered the fearsome 11th Panzer Division to come north and blast a path through the Americans. The division's reconnaissance battalion arrived on August 22nd and launched a probing attack on Butler's thin green line. Though the Americans fought off the German armored cars and half-tracks, thousands more Wehrmacht soldiers were coming up Route 7. The storm was gathering. The Montelimar Battle Square, a set of four towns in the rocky hills of southern France, was about to be the center of Dragoon's decisive battle. On August 22nd, the 141st Infantry Regiment of the 36th Division came racing into the lines as fast as they could, and Butler ordered them to grab the key piece of high ground. Like so many blood-soaked terrain features of World War II, the ridge overlooking Route 7 was known only by a number, Hill 300. The 141st placed their machine guns and mortars and prepared for the storm. The men of Task Force Butler and the 36th, along with French resistance fighters coming in from all directions to help, hunkered down and waited for the assault. The Battle of Montelimer began in earnest on August 24th as 11th Panzer Division and multiple German infantry divisions began their attack. 
The thin green line of American GIs fought back from their foxholes and sandbags till machine guns ran red hot and every bazooka round was spent. The Americans lost Hill 300, retook it, and then lost it again. The Germans lost Montelimar itself, retook it, and threw out every American attempt to grab the town and cut their retreat for good. Every time a German tank attack or an infantry assault managed to pry the Allies off Hill 300, another convoy of trucks or column of desperate infantry escaped past the blockade up Route 7. American artillery did its best to break up the attacks, but the waves of Wehrmacht infantry and Panther tanks hammered their positions day and night. On August 25th, the 11th Panzer Division's commander personally led the tank attack that overran another barricade on Route 7. The 141st Infantry Regiment's historian recalled the fighting at Montelimar. For us in the 2nd Battalion, Montelimar means a barren hill with German tanks and infantry surrounding us for six unforgettable hours, thousands of rounds of our own artillery thudding into waves of Germans that were flung at our position from every side. Mark V tanks so close you could feel the heat from the motor. A withdrawal at night from a hill covered with burning, exploding tanks, knocked out guns, and dead men. It was as intense as any battle of the Second World War. Day and night, the Germans would push the Americans back just long enough for a few of their comrades to escape, before a late-arriving company of Sherman tanks or American infantry would close the highway off again. The French resistance was there too, men and women pouring out of the countryside with rifles and submachine guns to stand side by side with the GIs in the fight to close the gap at Montelimar. One battalion commander called artillery fire onto his own location to keep from being overwhelmed. The US Army had the most technically proficient artillery arm of World War II, and soon eight battalions were lined up behind Task Force Butler, piling so many high explosive rounds into Route 7 that the asphalt caught fire. August 27th was a torrential downpour, just sheets of rain, and the Germans were unable to cross one of the rivers in their path, the makeshift bridges they had built being washed away. They sloshed across the fords with some men being ripped away by the current. But by August 28th, all the Germans who could escape had escaped and the 198th Infantry Division, or what was left of it, was designated as rear guard. They ran headlong into the newly arrived 143rd Infantry Regiment of the 36th Division, whose mortars and machine guns blasted them into ribbons. American artillery ripped apart column after column of retreating Nazis, with traffic jams turning into charnel houses. The dead men were bad enough, but the German army was still largely horse-drawn, and the shrieks of the poor animals almost rang over the din of cannons and rifles and machine guns. The sun rose on August 29th, and the Battle of Montelimar was over. The 3rd Infantry Division, which had pursued the retreating Germans, finally seized the town itself that morning. Sergeant Audie Murphy and his 15th Infantry Regiment cleared the last remaining Germans out of Montelimar. The battered, depleted men of Task Force Butler in the 36th Infantry Division looked out over the results of eight days of bloodshed. Route 7 was a highway of death, with thousands of German bodies dispersed around the burnt-out wrecks of vehicles and tanks and the bloated carcasses of horses. Fifteen miles of the highway were covered with this carnage, the product of 60,000 artillery shells fired into the Montelimar Battle Square. The Americans would call it the Avenue of Stenches, and the men assigned to clear it would have to wear gas masks from the putrid pall of the corpses. Still though, 
General Truscott was disappointed with the results of the battle. In his mind, a golden opportunity had been lost. The Americans had inflicted over 10,000 casualties for the loss of 1,600 of their own, but most of the 19th Army had escaped up Route 7. Task Force Butler had not been strong enough to close the gap, and General Dahlquist's 36th Division had moved too slowly. Supply problems had prevented the Americans from using their overwhelming firepower as much as they wanted, and the lack of close air support was a sore point for everyone. If the Allied Air Forces had had a squadron of Thunderbolts or Spitfires hammering that column of Germans, a lot less of them would have gotten away. But despite American disappointment, the Germans had not enjoyed their vacation in southern France. The 19th Army had escaped by the skin of its teeth, but almost none of its units were combat effective. The Germans had lost 70,000 prisoners, counting both the men captured by the Americans and those taken by the French in Marseille and Toulon. Their vehicles and heavy equipment lay strewn across the highway. Some infantry divisions had only 10% of their men left standing, and 11th Panzer had lost half its tanks in the Montelimar Battle Square. And they were still running. The Germans weren't out of the woods yet. Leaving the blackened ruin of Montelimar behind, the 7th Army galloped north, breathing down the Germans' necks. General Blaskowitz and General Weisse were about to learn what many of Hitler's commanders had already learned the hard way. When the U.S. Army was chasing you, there was no time to rest. The U.S. Army of World War II was a force that could move when it wanted to. The battle phase of Operation Dragoon was over. The pursuit phase, the race to the German border, had begun. The Americans would not be the only ones racing north. As Truscott's 6th Corps advanced up the east bank of the Rhone River, hot on the Germans' heels, General de Latre's Frenchmen came rushing up the West Bank. They had wrapped up their victories in Marseille and Toulon, and now they were barreling north to liberate the remainder of their homeland. It was 84 miles from Montelimar to Lyon, the third largest city in France. Patch, de Latre, and Truscott all sent out orders to catch the Germans and cut them to pieces. Gray columns of retreating Germans marched north and east, mostly on foot, doing their best to stay one step ahead of their pursuers. 200,000 American and French soldiers of the 7th Army were right behind them. The French resistance was boiling out of the mountains to get in on the action. They were just like the Ewoks to the German stormtroopers, just swarming out of nowhere to overwhelm them, and every fight of the campaign had the resistance coming out to help. And now, Allied air power was also coming back into play as new airfields were set up in southern France. And to top it all off, the 7th Army to the south was shoving the Germans into the path of Patton's 3rd Army coming from the east. The Allies had won the Battle of Normandy as well, and the two D-Days were coming together. The pursuit through southern France was also a liberation tour. Yo Kohuna, a colonial soldier from the Ivory Coast in West Africa, described the pursuit up the Rhone. The Air Force dropped bombs ahead of us. Then we would go forward and liberate, save a village. There were French and American troops with us too. When we liberated the village, they would gather all the children together, get a soldier to guard them and then feed them. Then we would move on. And wherever the Allies rolled in, huge crowds of locals came out to meet their saviors. Entire columns would be stopped in their tracks trying to catch the Germans by mobs of French citizens ecstatic to be freed from four years of occupation. 
And, you know, probably they weren't too upset to be stopped. I mean, that's not something you're going to be upset about. <laughs> the real ruckus came when the American 36th Infantry and the French 1st Infantry Divisions came rolling into Lyon on September 3rd, 1944. The party atmosphere was unmistakable. A French officer remembered the liberation of Lyon. We were fated, acclaimed, applauded, surrounded, bumped into, kissed. Never for my part have I been kissed by so many beautiful girls in a single afternoon. It's an unbeatable record. But Lyon had also been the center of the German repression of southern France. It had been the Gestapo headquarters. And the French resistance had some scores to settle. They began to take vengeance on the collaborators, those French people who had worked with the Nazis. French fascists were tied to stakes and executed by firing squad, with thousands of their countrymen looking on and cheering. War correspondent Eric Severide reported that, Mothers with babies rushed forward to look on the bodies at close range, and small boys ran from one to the other, spitting upon the bodies. When it came to collaborators, the French resistance, and the French people were all out of mercy. German resistance began to stiffen north of Lyon. The 11th Panzer Division and fragments of other German units began to fight for random towns on the road north. But all of this was just a rearguard action. Despite some tough little fights, the Allies were overwhelmingly strong. They would outflank the Germans and force them to retreat every time. The Americans were chasing faster than the Germans could run winning races to key bridges or towns or crossroads. They had to use old road atlases or old pocket guides to find their way, since they were literally off the edge of their original maps. Only the fierceness of occasional Wehrmacht resistance kept the Americans from bagging the whole column. Occasionally, the Americans pushed too far too fast. General Truscott sent the 117th Cavalry Squadron, a force of light-armored vehicles and truck-borne infantry, to try and cut the 19th Army's retreat at Montreval on September 3rd. The 117th blasted their way into town and tore up a bunch of rear area units, but within hours, the 11th Panzer Division came charging in like a bad dream. This was a sadly one-sided battle, as the light tanks and armored cars of the cavalry were no match for the Big Panther tanks. The 117th was almost annihilated, with the Nazis taking over 100 prisoners. But Montreval was an outlier, a one-shot, and every day, the pursuers scooped up thousands of German prisoners. Delatre's French forces pushed for Dijon, trying to achieve their link-up with Patton. The gap between the two forces was closing, and Blaskowitz's Army Group G was still trying to withdraw 80,000 Germans through that gap. Most of their motor vehicles had been abandoned for lack of fuel and spare parts, and the Wehrmacht troops were hurrying east on foot, trying to outrun two mechanized armies. Hitler had ordered Blaskowitz to set up a perimeter around Dijon and prepare a counterattack against Patton, but this was pointless to the point of absurdity. Hours after Hitler sent the orders, Delatre's Frenchmen had already caved in the supposed perimeter and were striking north as fast as possible. This was just how it was throughout the first two weeks of September 1944. The Germans were never able to establish a defensive line, because the Americans and the French punctured it before the orders even went out. French cities were liberated one after another. Besançon was freed on September 7th, with the 3rd Infantry Division storming multiple fortresses overlooking the town. Dijon was freed on September 11th, with the French severing the line of retreat for 20,000 Germans and forcing them to surrender. 
The day beforehand on September 10th, the French made contact with Patton's Third Army. The Allies now had a continuous front line stretching from the English Channel to the Swiss border. But by September 14th, the pursuit finally came to a halt. The Germans had finally managed to set up a defensive line in the Vosges Mountains near the town of Belfort, and the Allies could go no farther. Patch, Truscott, and Delatra wished they could have pursued faster, but they were out of gas and overstretched. It was time to rest, reorganize, and prepare for the next push towards Germany. The next day, September 15th, orders came down from Allied headquarters to place the final capstone on the campaign in southern France. General Truscott received his third star, making him a lieutenant general. The French Army B was redesignated French First Army, and both it and Patch's Seventh Army now fell under Jacob Dever's Sixth Army Group, which would report directly to Eisenhower and make up a full third of his forces in Western Europe. The Sixth Army Group, in its mix of Americans and Frenchmen, would have many bloody battles ahead of them on the way through the Vosges, Alsace, Strasbourg, Operation Nordwind, across the Rhine, and into Germany. Men like Sergeant Audie Murphy and Senegalese rifleman Yo Kohuna still had a long way to go. Operation Dragoon was over, but the war continued. From August 15th to September 14th, 1944, Operation Dragoon had done in one month what Churchill had predicted would take three. Marseille, the largest seaport and second largest city in France, had been liberated, and it would provide desperately needed supply capacity to the enormous Allied army now knocking at the gates of Germany. Two-thirds of France had been liberated, much of it by the French resistance themselves. Southwestern France, for instance, the French resistance completely cleared that out without a single American or French unit setting foot there. The Germans had escaped the Allied trap at Montelimar, True, a fact that General Truscott would still be sore about years after the war. But Operation Dragoon had torn them to pieces on their way out. Out of its original 300,000 men, General Blaskowitz's Army Group G had lost half, including over 100,000 prisoners. The German combat units were in ruins, 11th Panzer was reduced to a dozen tanks, and the other units lost all their heavy equipment. And the Allies had accomplished this for only 15,000 American and 10,000 French battle casualties. That is not a winning ratio for the Germans at this point in the war. It was one of the most successful Allied operations of World War II. Some people would later make fun of the campaign in southern France, calling it the Champagne Campaign because of how supposedly easy it was. But the men and women who went through it saw it differently. One paratrooper of the 509th Parachute Infantry Regiment remembered bitterly. Someone called the Southern France invasion the Champagne Campaign. That might sound like having a good time, but I was twice the sole survivor of my platoon. Does that tell you anything? No one who went through Operation Dragoon would forget it. Even if it was only the other D-Day. So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? That, guys, is the story of Operation Dragoon, the other D-Day, one of the many forgotten campaigns of World War II. Like I said at the beginning, World War II was so huge, there's so much, so many things to talk about, 
and I'm not even going to try to hit them all. We have so many other places to go together, so many other time periods and unknown soldiers to meet, and it would be too easy to get sucked into the all-World War II, all-the-time hole of, like, every military history channel or documentary or whatever. I only want the main episodes to touch on World War II once or twice a season. But I hope that you enjoyed coming to this time period with me for the first time. One of the major reasons I'm fascinated by this campaign in particular is the heavy participation of both French armed forces and the French resistance, both of which were super important to Allied success. People often forget that the French played any significant role after the fall of France in 1940, but both the resistance and French armies in exile remained a constant presence and threat to Nazi domination of Europe. The fact that well over half of the French soldiers were colonial troops from Africa, and even the freaking Pacific Islands of all places, is also super fascinating to me, especially since they were some of the best combat soldiers of the campaign. They were definitely more motivated than the Ostruppen, and I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that the French resistance were probably the number one most important factor in the unexpected success of Operation Dragoon. You can tell throughout this episode, they're just boiling out of the countryside and overwhelming the, Fr- the Germans in their path. They were a key part of the victory. And Dragoon's success was unexpected. Lots of people, like Winston Churchill or poor Admiral Moon, thought it would be a total failure. Most Allied planners didn't think it would be a failure, but they predicted a tough, long fight like the one going on in Normandy. They didn't expect German resistance to fall apart as quickly as it did, and Dragoon turned into a running battle fairly quickly. This victory was so successful largely because the American commanders, especially General Truscott, took the opportunity and went for the kill. That they didn't destroy the Germans outright was mainly due to supply problems, and it was a near-run thing. They almost wiped out the German 19th Army. But Dragoon was also super important to the broader outcome of World War II. If it had never happened, if it had been cancelled, then that huge German army would have been sitting untouched down in southern France to cause problems for Eisenhower's army in the north. That would have slowed down the invasion of Germany by months. And so would the supply problems, which the capture of Marseille did a lot to alleviate. Logistics were super important in World War II, and the fact that southern France had been liberated made the supply problems of Eisenhower's forces that much easier. Eisenhower's supply problems were one of the major regions that he wasn't able to advance into Germany in 1944. He had to wait till 45. It could have been even later without those supply problems being solved. Without the additional logistics and forces provided by the other D-Day, the Western Allied invasion of Germany would have been much slower and less successful and overstretched. And, of course, it chased the Germans out of two-thirds of France, which the French were super happy about, and that's nothing to shake a stick at. I think Dragoon isn't well known for a few reasons. None of the really famous generals were there. It was overshadowed by the end of the Normandy campaign, and it didn't result in high losses. It wasn't a total bloodbath. But if anything, the fact that losses were relatively light makes it more impressive, not less. The plan was thrown together in a month from whatever was available. It was the red-headed stepchild of Allied operations in Europe. I kept saying that. Rubber bands and duct tape. They had to improvise an airborne division from like 10 different units. They had to use a homemade armor brigade for tasks that an actual armor division would have trouble accomplishing. The Germans knew they were coming, and for all that, it worked. It was an amazing success when it could have been a disaster, and a lot of the credit for that goes to General Devers, General Patch, General Truscott, and General Delatre, a cohort of generals that even World War II buffs don't know much about. But of course... 
the fighting and dying was done by the soldiers. I started this episode by saying that everyone who fought in World War II had their own D-Day. Just because they weren't on the beaches in Normandy didn't mean they weren't in the thick of it. Was Audie Murphy's D-Day August 15, 1944, when Operation Dragoon hit the beaches? Did Algerian riflemen and the fighting French resistance women have their D-Day on August 23rd in Marseille? Was Task Force Butler's D-Day August 25th the roadblocks of Montelimar? Was the 117th Cavalry's D-Day on September 3rd when they were overrun by the German panzers? Did the Senegalese troops have their D-Day, or the French troops, or the 3rd Division, or the 45th Division have their D-Day at some nameless roadblock north of Lyon? Maybe Operation Dragoon's casualties were lower than the famous D-Day, the Battle in Normandy. Maybe it wasn't quite as important to the overall war. Maybe it wasn't the big event. But thousands of American, British, Canadian, French, and African parents or spouses or children received telegrams or letters with bad news from southern France. Thousands of grieving families would not care that this campaign was supposedly the easy one, the sideshow, the other D-Day. And the survivors wouldn't care either. To the soldiers of Operation Dragoon, to the millions of liberated French people and the French resistance fighters, and for those who didn't make it home, to them, their story was the real D-Day. Hey, thanks a lot for listening today. You ever stop by Montelimar? Look out for Panther Tanks and try the nougat. I hear it's great. If you like what you've heard today, tell your friends about it. If you don't, tell your enemies. Just maybe not if they have superior air power. Please leave me a good review on Apple Podcasts if you get the chance. If you want to read plenty of stuff I've written all about World War II or find the maps and images for this episode, it's all on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to contribute to my book fund, I have a donate button there as well. I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod, or just drop me a line at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, good or bad, I want to know. Finally, guys, it is the holidays. I am taking a break for the next couple of weeks to actually, like, hang out with my family and stuff. But never fear. You will have some unfiltered soldiers to bridge the gap. And in January, we will be back to our regularly scheduled programming. So check back same place, same time next week on Unknown Soldiers.